We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 3. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him and said, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can now all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who he has appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Welcome again. Chris is my name. Lovely to see you here. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful story in front of us. Um, help me to be really clear. Help us to think as we get our heads into it. And we pray that you'd work it through to our hearts and transform our lives. Um, we, need, we live on your word, and so we pray, God, that you give us life. 
Amen. Well, being uh, Christianity always drives us beyond ourselves, and part of our vision of our church is to think about how we can love other people beyond us. In Acts chapter 3, we have the first recorded example of someone in the early church reaching out to someone else in need, Peter and John with the lame man. So we can grasp the relevance of this chapter for us. We remember, don't we, back to chapter 1, where there was the promise of the Spirit, Acts chapter 2 last week, the coming of the Spirit, and then the Spirit forms a community, a Spirit-formed community, a beautiful community at the end of chapter 2 there, where we read people were generous, they were of one heart and mind, and the apostles performed many wonders and signs. And now in chapter 3, Luke slows down the narrative, he zooms the camera in on just one of those miraculous signs, the healing of the lame man, and we think, why does Luke focus our attention in on just this one? Well, through it, we're reminded that Jesus is still on his throne, he's still pouring out his blessings, and the miracle, this miracle in particular, reminds us um, that Jesus is blessing us. It's a sign to us of where we are going. Because here is a man who's wonderfully and totally renewed and restored and remade and his restoration and healing is a picture for us, a preview of where we are headed. That's the explanation Peter will give. God promises us this, Isaiah 35, uh, written long before Jesus came, looked forward to the coming of the day of the Lord. Then the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, The lame would leap like a deer. The mute tongue shout for joy. They would enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy would be upon their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, of course, all of those things that Isaiah prophesied happened during Jesus' earthly ministry. And they were signs showing us where we are going. Well, now Jesus is demonstrating it again from heaven, from his heavenly throne, showing us This, in fact, is where we are going. And we know from Peter's sermon at Pentecost that when someone turns to Jesus, um, instantly they receive immediate blessings, the blessings of forgiveness, the blessings of the gift of the Holy Spirit. They are immeasurable gifts. To be forgiven, to have your sins forgiven, is to be set free from worry, about where things now stand with you and God because to be forgiven means that suddenly your acceptance with God has nothing to do about you working to get into God's good books. It's nothing to do with you standing on the shaky foundation of your performance or lack of performance or average mediocre response to the Lord. It has everything to do with standing on the rock who is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus becomes increasingly precious to someone who's forgiven because It's by his death that they are covered. By his blood they know they are washed entirely clean, they are made spotless in God's sight. Through his righteousness they are declared righteous. And so the person who is forgiven through Christ becomes increasingly secure. What a wonderful thing. Magnificent blessing, as is the gift of the Holy Spirit, to have the great comforter from God God's spirit take up residence in your heart and connect you with God and with all that Jesus has won for you on the cross. 
and to provide you with ongoing assurance. This is an amazing blessing. So the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit are immediate blessings people receive on, return, on turning to Jesus. But then if you want to know, are there any future blessings after you have become a Christian, then this healing of this man in Acts 3 speaks because his healing, his restoration, provides us with a picture, a foretaste of what's to come, a preview, if you like. And I want to walk through the passage in four steps, four Ps. First of all, the picture of restoration, verses 1 to 10, then 11 to 16, the person who does the restoration, and it's not Peter or John, the path that each of, each of us needs to take for our own restoration, and then the promises be, that lie behind the whole plan. So picture, person, path, promises. First of all, the picture of restoration. This is what happens. Most of us know the story, don't we? Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. <laughs> he held out his palms and he asked them for arms, which is money, not these things. Do you know, the picture of this man being forced to beg at the temple gate is a very sad picture. Because if the temple community had been obeying God and obeying the need to be generous and to look after the needy, as they commanded in Deuteronomy 15, then this man would have had no cause to beg. Which means that his presence at the temple gate is in fact a tragic indictment on the temple community. And what a contrast to the beautiful picture we have of the community of believers who are formed by the Spirit, where there's no one in need, where people give what they have, where people sell their possessions to provide for the needs. It's a beautiful picture. And we are meant to see the contrast and we're meant to see the irony. You know, the temple, the spirit-filled community are meeting at the temple, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, eating together, praying together, sharing their possession, practicing generosity, no one in need. But here's a man in terrible need sitting at the temple gate called beautiful, ironic, because his life in the temple community is not beautiful. Life in the spirit-filled community, that is beautiful. He needs what they've got. So good news for him, the men about to pass him by are Peter and John, but there's nothing random about this. God has placed them across his path and God has placed him across their paths and God sovereignly works to bring believers with needy people together as he does every day in our lives as well. Well, this man asks Peter and John for money as he's asking everyone. Peter looks straight at him as does John and maybe he's just sort of sitting there with his eyes down and his hand up or vaguely glancing around. Look at us, they say. Now, of course, they don't have any money, but what they do have, they give. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. I love this. Here's a man who's thoroughly restored, thoroughly, physically. His body is miraculously restored. I live in a family of physios, so Narelle's worked with disabled people, Bronwyn works in rehab in um, Flinders Hospital. I'm told for someone who's been crippled from birth, who hasn't used their limbs for more than 40 years, who's never had any therapy, their legs would have been shrunken and contorted for him to, and for him to get up and to immediately 
walk, by any account, it's an astounding miracle of recreation, requiring new sinews, new muscle fibers, new tendons. And more than that, even if someone had all these things dangling from their mid, <laughs> they wouldn't have walked normally because it would normally take months of rehabilitation to teach the brain to send, send right signals to muscle fibers if he's never walked before. And here is a man who now is walking, not just walking, no, 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 he's leaping. Now, you know, it's hard for some of us to leap even though we can walk, isn't it? Well, he's walking, he's leaping. If he's not just leaping, he's praising God. Here is a man who's, in other words, whose body and soul has been restored because he ha his healing has come through the faith that's come through Jesus Christ. He's been granted that. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? Massive. This, why is this here? This is a picture of our hope. Because if you look at verses 20 and 21, see the explanation that Peter himself gives to this um, miracle. He tells us that when God sends again Jesus the Messiah, that is the time when he will restore everything. We are meant to connect this man's restoration with God's restoration of everything. This man's miracle is a sign to us of what God will bring about on the day of Christ. Now, this is a hope which the world doesn't have. This is a hope which keeps people going. People here, some of us live with chronic conditions. And for you, every day, doing a small thing is a mountain. And you look at other people who just walk through life, they're healthy, they're young, they're fit, they can do thousands of little things and they don't even think twice. But for you to do them, it's a mountain. Um, having a chronic condition, your work prospects are affected, aren't they? You, you can't earn in the way in which you could if you were healthy and had a body that worked. Well, this man's exactly the same. And maybe for you, you've stopped praying because you've grown tired, maybe you've, you're bitter, maybe, maybe you're exhausted because there's been no answer. Can I say none of your prayers for God to reverse your situation are wasted because he will. God is reminding you that as well as giving you the immeasurable gifts of forgiveness and of the Holy Spirit, he's reminding you through this sign of a restoration that he will bring to your body and soul on the day of Christ. Luke has recorded this for us so that our hope would be strong. And when you think about it, on that day when Jesus comes back and restores, won't it be worth it? It'll be so worth it. You will rise, you'll stand up strong, restored in every way, body and soul. No bitterness, no pain. It's all there, uh, the restoration. And your memory of what you've been through, the years of disappointment, the years of difficulty, the years of frustration, the years of anger, it will fade away fade away on that day because on that day we know your legs will be strong, your body will be strong, your soul will leap in praise of Jesus, your great restorer. And yes, in this man's case, just as the crowd came running in astonishment and amazement because they recognized him on the day of Christ, this will happen to you as well. People will come in astonishment and amazement, people who've known you in wonder with praise to God on that day. What a great day that will be. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have, I give you. 
When we think beyond ourselves to those in need, what do we have that we could give them? Um, maybe your first thought is money. <laughs> it's the, the thing that's perhaps on hand. Well, of course God gives us money to be generous to others. But notice here that the apostles, though they don't have any, they, there would be some money up at the temple because people are sharing it, right? They could have gone in and come back and given him a Band-Aid solution, something temporary which would alleviate suffering for a bit. But what they choose to give is a solution. If you had a choice, should I give the Band-Aid or should I give the solution, what would you choose? You choose the solution. Now, I don't think that the reason why this story is recorded here is so that when we see someone in need, we, we then offer to heal them in the name of Jesus on the spot. Now, I'm not saying God can't heal. Uh, I'm not saying that you should never pray for this to happen, um, even for unbelievers. Um, I'm not saying I've never done it. In fact, I've held prayer meetings for, for people who are sick and uh, diseased, had cancer. Some have been astoundingly uh, healed. Some haven't at all. Um, I'm just saying this passage isn't there to teach that point. It's the apostles who do the healing here. It's not the normal people, okay, normal believers. And the point of the apostles' healing is that this gives credence to their message of authority, apostolic authority, at this stage in the book of Acts. Okay. However, if we were to try and apply Peter's words, what I do have, I give you, well, what do we have that gives a solution? Surely it's the gospel, isn't it? It's the words of eternal life. It's the news of hope. It's the news of restoration. It's the news of Christ's return. Um, that means that when I am faced with people asking me to give money to support a needy cause, and this happens often, doesn't it? it happened to me on Friday. It makes sense for me to prioritise giving to organisations which give the gospel over those that don't. So if I'm asked, I'm trying to apply this, if I'm asked to choose between, say, um, a generic um, aid agency, say World Vision and, or Compassion, for example, I'll choose Compassion because I know that that gives the gospel. If I have to choose between Oxfam and, Oxfam and Barnabas Fund, I'll give to Barnabas Fund because I know that as well as giving aid relief, it gives the gospel as well. It's not that other organisations don't do good, um, they do. It's that the good that they do is at best a short-term alleviation of suffering. It's not the solution, which is what we have. And there are lots of people who will give money to alleviate short-term sufferings, but there's a limited pool of people who will give money to help the gospel go out, which is the solution. So I'll choose that one. Anyway, first of all, so first of all, we have this astounding picture of restoration in the restoration of this man. Now in verses 11 to 16, I want us to think about the person who restored the lame man. This is really important because it would be very easy for Peter and John to take the credit. After all, they've just done the miracle, the crowd's gathering, the people are gawping in amazement. It'd be very easy to take the glory, take the credit, because after all, not everyone's chosen to be an apostle, hey, but they are. And didn't Jesus say, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds? Yes, however, remember the next part of the verse, so that they would not glorify you, they'd glorify the Father who is in heaven. Okay. So when people are staring at the apostles, Peter immediately says, why do you stare at us? As if by our own power or godliness we did this. How ridiculous. We're incompetent. We don't have the power to do this. 
and we're not godly enough to pull it off. We don't, we're not worthy. We don't have the worthiness to do this. And so he says in verse 12, it's not us. Verse 13, it's Jesus. Now this is really important for us to see this deflection of glory to Jesus as is appropriate because, of course, God's doing things, isn't he? He's doing things in our lives. He's answering prayers, but we can't see him. We do see maybe the people who pray. We see people who are at the front lines of um, being God's arms and hands in a situation, but we can't see God the Father. We can't see Jesus. Uh, we can't see the Holy Spirit, yet we know it's God who gives growth. It's Jesus who said he will build his church. It's the Holy Spirit who transforms lives. So where do we give the glory? In every church, you know, there will be people who will be attached to the congregation, but not to Jesus. And there'll be people who'll attach themselves to the leader they admire, but not to Jesus. Could you believe it? There'll even be people who attach themselves to the senior minister ahead of to Jesus. What a mistake. I want you to listen to the words of Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish pastor who died at the age of 29. Um, he was greatly loved by his people. He greatly loved his people. And he did confess he loved to be loved by his people as well. But in one of his sermons he said, a minister will make a poor saviour on the day of wrath. It's not knowing a minister or loving one or hearing one that will save you. You need to have your hand on the head of the Lamb of God yourselves. So as much as God blesses us through people, we each must look to Jesus ourselves. Peter knew this for himself and he knew it needed to be true for everyone present because in this crowd at the temple, he realizes that they have treated Jesus appallingly. And yet, says Peter, I want you to know, verse 13, that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has glorified his servant Jesus. He's treated them better than you. You've done the opposite to what, how, how the Lord has treated Jesus. And so he turns very bravely towards the crowd and says, you had him arrested. You pushed for his execution when Pilate came out three times and said, I find no basis for a charge against this man and pushed for his release. You said, no, 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 crucify him. You preferred that a murder be released than, than Jesus be execute, executed. And so we need to realize this treatment of Jesus, appalling as it is, it's not just Jewish, actually it's human. We Australians are very good at this. Think about the recent drought. Think about spiritually what was going on for Australia during the recent fires. Okay. Think about the hardness of heart which most Australians have towards God. I think about passages in the Old Testament like Amos chapters two and three where God says, I sent you drought and you didn't return to me. I sent you famine, you still haven't returned to me. I've sent you plague, you still haven't returned to me. The point is that you're meant to return to God when he sends these things. Think of how many atheists in their moment of terror, fearing for their lives, confronted with walls of fire, called out and prayed to the God, their creator, who they later admitted on news that they always knew was there. And he answered their prayers. This was picked up by Channel 7, I think. 
Think of the tens of thousands of Christians who during the fires and after the drought were praying for rain, begging the creator and sustainer of this world to sovereignly hear and answer our prayers and send rain, drenching rain to deluge our lands and to put out the fires. And how God answered those prayers. Last weekend, you'll know I wasn't here, I was in Sydney, it was our goddaughter's 18th birthday, it was good to be there. But we were there on the wettest weekend in Sydney in decades. So on Saturday, Wollongong got 25 centimetres of rain. Wow. Uh, On Saturday morning, um, Warragamba Dam, Sydney's water supply, was down to low levels, 38%. By Sunday night, it was at 70% in one weekend. What an answer to prayer. Isn't that amazing? God can just reverse things just like that in a way that none of us would have thought conceivable, you know, several weeks ago. And he just does it, just in answer to prayer. Now, how do you think Australians responded to this? Did they say, thank you, thank you, Lord, for answering the prayers? Well, last, it was last Monday or Tuesday, uh, one of our news providers had this headline, prayers answered. And instantly there was a, twit- a Twitter tirade, an avalanche of protest, which said, what's this got to do with God? What's this got to do with prayers being answered? It's all scientific. Take the headline down. And then the news provider took the headline down straight away. The heart of Australians is hard towards God and we will do anything to push him out, though he does immense good. He saves lives. And we just say, no, no, no. Well, you only have to look to the cross to see how far the human heart will go to get rid of God and get rid of Jesus. I mean, the cross tells us two things, doesn't it? How far we'll go to remove God when he comes close, but also how far God will go to bring us back to him. Because, you see, the wonderful thing about the Lord is that he is a match for human sinfulness. Peter says, you have dishonored Jesus, but God has honored him. You killed him, but Jesus, who's alive, has made this man well. You have made a tragic decision. You have killed the author of life. Now, if you think you've done some pretty big blunders in your life, to kill the author of life. It's hard to think of a bigger one than that, isn't it? Could you believe it, if it's possible, if you've killed the author of life, God reversed the decision And we apostles have seen him raised. And when we called on Jesus to heal this man, he did it because he is alive, he's there, and because he wants to. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's not us. It's not us. It's Jesus. It's Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So Luke has painted a picture for us of restoration. He's talked about the person who restores. And now I want us to think about the path to our own restoration. Because Luke, the author, who's writing this, isn't just interested in documenting the healing. He's interested in the crowds. Peter, well, Peter's interested in the crowds who are gathered there. But Luke's interested, he records this, because he's interested in us who are reading this story now. And so Peter's words to the crowd now come to us through Luke. 
He says, I want you to know that it was Jesus who did the miracle, and now I want you to know that you need Jesus yourself, not because of your lameness, but because of your deadness. Not because you have a physical incapacity, though you may have, but because of your spiritual incapacity. That even greater than any issue of physical need of healing is your need for spiritual resurrection. Now why do I say this? Because after having healed the man, here's what Peter didn't do. He didn't say, right, anyone who's got a physical issue of complaint, physical deformity, physical um, sickness, just form a straight line and I'm going to heal you. He didn't do that. What did he do? He spoke about our need to repent and to accept Jesus and receive forgiveness. That's the greater need, actually, the greater reality. Our souls to be restored, and with that, our bodies, eventually. He says to them, verse 17, you know that the crucifixion was a stupidly evil thing to do, but verse 18, God planned it, that his Messiah would suffer. What he's saying is that God is so sovereign, even your evil deed was his planned solution to restore you body and soul. Isn't that astounding? And then he says, so here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What does it mean to repent? Because there are so many people who come to church, they can understand and tick all the boxes about what Christians believe, but they never start the Christian life because they never repent. And they look at people, other people at church, who seem to get the Christian life, and they don't get it because they have never repented. Repentance is the first necessary step on the path to your restoration. And what repentance means is that you utterly surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. You don't play games with him. You don't make bargains with him. You don't hand him part of your life and keep the rest for yourself. You say, Jesus, Lord Jesus, take the whole of my life, every single part of it. Take what I do, take what I think, take my public thoughts, my private thoughts, take my past, take my present, take my future, take my ambitions, take my plans, take my dreams. They all belong to you. From now on, I want you to be the boss of my life. I want you to be Lord, I want you to take control as my king and savior. And if you could liken your house to a room, what you're doing, a house, sorry, liken your life to a house, what you're doing is you're saying, Lord Jesus, there are no secret rooms that you cannot enter. There are no doors with locks on them. There's no hidden place under the stairs. There's no secret drawer. You take it all. Take it all. Recently at the CMS conference, the speaker, Kanishka Rafael, who's the Dean of St. Andrew's Cathedral in Sydney, he described, he was Sri Lankan and uh, uh, from non-Christian background and described how he was first forced to consider Jesus Christ seriously because he met his friend who'd become a Christian and his friend, they were talking about this and his friend said, I became a Christian when I handed over control of my life to Jesus Christ. And that was very confronting for Kanishka because he thought he was in control. But it was a true description of what a Christian is. And when it's that 100% surrender, when that's the reality, 
Jesus comes in and brings 100% forgiveness and fellowship. Peter says he will wipe away all your sins, verse 19. He'll push the delete button on your sins forever. He pushes it on the sins of the person who repents and welcomes Christ. And he'll give you, verse 19, times of refreshing. It's a lovely word for the gift of the Holy Spirit who makes you new, who makes you reborn. These are his immediate blessings. But then if you look in verse 20, he says, also, in the end, Christ will be sent for you and you'll be in his presence forever in a restored creation. And you'll be part of that restoration. And there's the restoration. So this is what I'm saying. You must please be careful of having a souvenir Jesus. You know, someone dongling from your car mirror, someone on your key ring, someone who can improve your life a little bit and make it a bit more lucky because Jesus is your little friend. That is not Christianity. He is your Lord. He owns you. He owns everything. Real repentance means you're utterly surrendered everything to him and he has taken reign of your life. And the sequence is, if that is true, you receive pardon today, restoration tomorrow. This brings us to the last thing and that is the promises that lie behind all of this and this will be quick. Um, Maybe you glossed over these verses when they were being read. You may have switched off. But they are wonderful verses because Peter says to his listeners, I want you to know that the promises of this restorer called Jesus, who will lead you to the final restoration, go right back to Moses. They go back 1,200 years. And all the prophets who came after him say the same thing. There will be one called Jesus and he will take you to the restoration. And in fact, Peter says, you could go back even further than Moses, you could go back to Abraham, you could go back 2,000 years. He would bring the one who would bless the world and we know, of course, that this has happened. Now, why are these verses here? What's the relevance for us? I think it's helpful because we can lose perspective. It's very easy for us to think, well, I've got onto the Christian train, but maybe, a, maybe it's fanciful. Maybe it's a Harry Potter train. <laughs> um, Maybe it's just a story. Maybe I'm deluded. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm on the Christian train and it's a bit boring. You know, it's not very exciting. Maybe it is for others, but my life is ordinary. The people around me are ordinary. I come to church every week. They seem fairly ordinary. It tends to be the same people. Um, and maybe you're thinking, is this it? You know, I kind of don't feel like I'm going anywhere really. And maybe, in fact, you're thinking, actually, I'm not even going anywhere. I'm stuck at the station. I've been sitting at the station for quite a while. And so maybe you're thinking, is this only a flash in the pan? Or is it a pipe dream? Peter, in Acts 3, says, did you realize that the train that you are on has been traveling now for 4,000 years? 2,000 years back to Jesus 2,000 years back to Abraham. And may I say, if you are bored and thinking maybe it's time to alight, you need to repent of having such insulting thoughts about what God is doing in your life. Christianity has got its runs on the board. It's come in with 4,000 years of travel. We don't know how long the journey will finish, uh, we don't know when Christ will come, 
You might only be one stop away. But we are privileged, if we're on the train, to be part of something which God has miraculously, unstoppably, truly, powerfully established with Jesus. It's bigger than us. And Peter is calling attention to the great past which lies behind a great future. You have masses of promises behind you. You have masses of fulfillment in front of you. And so if you're getting sleepy in the Christian life, I just want to say, be careful. You don't throw away something that's bigger and better than the world. You need to feed the promises into your head, into your life, into your heart. If you want to get them into your heart, tell someone else about them. There are very few people out there who think they need the gospel, but I can say in this city, there is, this city has nothing which can stand or compare to the promises outlined in the gospel. So if you're weary in the journey and you feel that maybe the best has passed, everything good's been taken away from you, you wish you could go back to the good old days, restore the past, let me tell you that all your longings for something better, that's your destiny, in fact. This is where the train's going. Your longings for something truly satisfying are in the restoration, which God has planned for his people and which he's pointing you now to in Acts chapter three. So there you have it, four-point plan in Acts 3. The restoration, the man miraculously made new as a picture of what's to come. There's the person behind it all, Jesus himself. There's the path to restoration, repentance, welcoming him as Savior and Lord. And then there are the promises which lie behind it. And that is that now you would be deeply, deeply assured that it's a great train to be on. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this wonderful, beautiful chapter, for this rich picture um, that speaks to us today. Thank you, God, that uh, Peter spoke about more than just the healing of this man, but pointed us beyond him to what Jesus will do and promises to do. And Lord, help us to repent that we may be fully on the train. In Jesus' name. Amen.